Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. We're here with Brad Van Butte and Matt Harris, co-founders of Send With Us, a transactional email marketing platform. How are you guys doing today? Pretty awesome. Good. Good, good. <laughs> Excellent. So I just said the word transactional email. Can you define for me what is a transactional email and how is this different from just a regular email? Totally. Um, I can almost quote Wikipedia on this because I'm very familiar on the topic now. But the kind of like standard definition for a transactional email is that it's an email that's triggered or based on a transaction or like a pre-existing um, relationship that a customer has with a product or service. So that's like the really boring Wikipedia definition. Basically, it means that like someone actually does something in an app or on a website and then they get an email that they expect to get based on that action. Okay. So can you give me some examples of what kind of transactions we might mean here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, transaction is such an unsexy word. Let's just say that these are just actions people take. Like when you sign up on, on a website and they send you an email to confirm your email address, that's a transactional email. Uh, and that's like the, the most basic action you possibly have is just sign up for a service. You know, a more granular example would be when you send your friend a, a message on Facebook and Facebook sends them an email saying you have a new message. The action or transaction there is your friend sending you a message and Facebook's notifying you about it. Okay, so how does this work then? I mean, is it like as soon as an action happens in my application, that triggers something else? I mean, what's the typical process for this? Yeah, so the, the typical process, like from the developer standpoint, is you're building a new app and um, you've got like a user sign up form. Um, and when the form basically submits, you have like a post handler that's um, taking in like the user's details, like your email address and their name, last name, or password, whatever, and you create your user object. And then you want to send them an email. So you likely have an HTML file in your source code, which is like the contents of this email you want to send them. And then you would merge in the data from your user database into that HTML template and then pass it off to an SMTP relay to send that email to that user saying, congrats, you actually created an account. So it's directly kind of sometimes synchronous with the form processing on the signup. You send that email as well, as well right away. Do you have any examples of when they would get sent uh, transactional emails? I think like the, the easiest way to think about it is like any any email that's one to one in real time, right? So like contrast that with like like promotional or newsletter sends. It's like one to many. It's scheduled, you know, to all go off at one time, and many customers are receiving the same email. And, you know, transactional emails are you know it's an email that you're just receiving, typically triggered in real time by some action taken on the website. So like to go back to Matt's Facebook example. If I message Matt on Facebook, that's me doing like a real-time action within Facebook, and then Facebook is taking a, a real-time notification through email to let Matt know that happened, and only Matt is receiving that email. So it's one-to-one -one communication. Exactly. Um, other other great examples are like password reset. So if you request a, a forgotten password link from a web service or um, like an invoice, like if you order something off of Amazon, you know you get that that receipt email that contains all the details. Um, it's one-to-one, -one. you're the only one receiving that email, and it's real-time, it happens as soon as you make that purchase. So am I to understand then that these emails are deeply personal in a way that, you know, the one-to-many sort of emails, the marketing emails that you described may not be? Yeah, that's actually one of the coolest things about transactional emails, that they're all, like, hyper-personalized. It's based on the action you took, so it's, it's you know, directly to you based on something that happened, whether it was 
many like one to many marketing emails. It's kind of like maybe you have someone's like first name you can merge in, but like other than that, you really don't have any other data on people. And because it's so personalized, like you see much, much higher engagement with transactional emails, right? If you think of like the open rate or the click through rate on a, on a welcome email or a forgotten password or an invoice email compared to like a, like a promotional send, like your customers are way, way more likely, like four to five times more likely to interact with transactional emails than, than the one to many style emails. So in a lot of web apps, these emails are tucked away in the code somewhere where the developers would go, we, we do this ourselves in some of these apps. What's wrong with this picture? Yeah, I mean, I think what's wrong there is that you have emails that are, you know, four or five times more likely than a marketing email to get opened. Um, they're usually a core part of the product experience. So go back to the Facebook example, like people coming back to Facebook to read their messages is pretty important to Facebook. And if that doesn't happen, um, you know, something's really broken. So you have these like hyper valuable messages because they're like core parts of the platform and they're trapped away in source code. And most programmers care about like getting a feature out or, you know, building something cool or, you know, working on some new queuing system. They don't really care about looking at the analytics on that. You have a new message email and then seeing if they can tweak the content of that email so it performs better. So this is where the, the whole problem exists, where you have these emails are owned by developers and they really don't care about them. So with some of us, our goal is like, all right, let's surface these emails to people who do care about them and who do want to make them better. Explain this to me a little bit more so I understand. I mean, isn't all of the source code that we have owned by developers? Uh, what's the difference between this and something else? So what does the developer really care about with the transactional email? Do they care about the contents of the email or do they care about the API call and the trigger saying, okay, send this? Right. From um, my perspective, it's, you know, you told me what the email should look like and I've written the HTML and designed it up however it is that it's supposed to look. And mm-hmm. that's all I've done at this point. I've done my job. Exactly. Right. You're, you're done because, you know, you know, the content that the market told you they want to send is going to be sent. And more than likely, lots of developers end up writing some kind of email abstraction in their, in their system just to make this easier so they can just like write like one liners in order to send emails. That's what a developer wants is, you know, make this one line of code for me. Right. So yeah. how then does this differ from the other core par- parts of my application then? So I, I know then that I need to, you know, if I'm changing the onboarding flow or something, I probably have to go to a developer. How is this different in this case? Um, I mean, like, like think about it as like a, like a landing page or like a blog, right? Like you, like if you want to tweak something on a landing page, you use like a CMS system or if you want to, write a new blog post, you, you know, you go through your blogging platform, you're not going to get your developer to like write and code up this new blog post for you, or this new landing page for you. You're going to use the CMS system that your, your product team can play with. So like think of it as like the HTML exists inside Sam with us in this, in this system where, you know, product and marketing teams can, can play with it and edit it and, and get all the analytics back on that particular template. And the developer just writes the code once and then you know, doesn't have to think about it. So there's, there's no going back to the developer team once the integration is in place. Okay, I, I think I get it. So from my perspective, there'd be a lot of back and forth if you wanted these changes to be made. You'd be having to go to me and saying, hey, Josh, like we need this small text change. Or now we need to just test out whether or not two different variations of the same yeah. text. So like, so like imagine, imagine, you know, like I'm, I'm on a product team and I want to change the subject line of my welcome email, right? Like this email that everyone who signs up gets and I just want to try saying something like a little funny or a little humorous in it. My process to do that is like, I have to go to a product manager and convince them to like get this into the roadmap. And then it's going to take, 
you know, three or four weeks for some developer to go in and tweak this one string that's somewhere in my code base. And then I'm waiting like another one to two weeks for the deploy to happen. And like, this is, you know, this is best case scenario. Like often these, these things can take months. So by having the content of these emails and the analytics of these emails in a separate platform, your product team can just go, can just go make the change and like instantly see results. What's the difference between plain text and HTML emails? The only difference between plain text and HTML is your audience and what mail clients are using to open them. Most emails people send now send, send both, send HTML and plain text alongside each other in a, uh, a package that's called a, like a mime package. But, um, in general, there's no real difference. Is there a difference in the impact that each of those will have? <laughs> the bad answer is that it depends on your audience. If you're mailing to primarily like really hardcore developers, like if you're, you know, maintaining Linux.org or something like that, you know, it's likely that you have a lot of guys reading mail on, on like command line clients or whatever, and they're really going to um, appreciate you know, getting only plain text emails. But if you're like a consumer web company or, you know, your Dropbox, your users probably would appreciate a really pretty HTML formatted email. So it's entirely dependent on the audience you're sending email to. I think, I think the, the, the answer there is like, just try it, right? Like try plain text emails on your customers, try HTML emails on your customers and see which ones, see which ones they engage with and which ones they enjoy. Yeah. We get this exact question a lot from customers as they're, as they're coming on board. And one of the, the cool parts of our platform is like, we can just tell them, look, just like AB test, a plain text only email versus a HTML welcome email. And you'll see the results in your audience and, and what they want. And then you can, then you can know. So this is actually a perfect follow-on then. I want to understand how you're able to tell which of those emails perform better or worse. I mean, we, we talked about A-B testing. Let's just operate under the assumption that I don't really know what that means. Can you mm -hmm. explain it to me like I'm five? Totally. <laughs> um, A-B testing, also known as split testing, we do something a little bit more advanced, but it's essentially when you're uh, you take the same... Let's use the, um, yeah, the welcome is a great example. Every time you sign up for a service, you don't all get the same email. You set up maybe 10 different variants of the, of the welcome email and they all have slight changes. Like one has a different subject line, um, or maybe all 10 have different subject lines. So every time someone signs up randomly, they get one of those 10 different emails with a different subject line. So that's the A to B test means that you have your A variant and your B variant. In some of us, you have your A variant, your B variant and up to like and as many variants as you want. And then we randomly send one of those different variants of the email every time a new user signs up and they get that welcome email. So kind of a convoluted example. Let me clear what A-B testing is. I think so. So how are you able to end up declaring who the winner is at this point? Awesome. Yeah, totally. So um, there's three different, actually there's four different metrics we track uh, performance of a test to. Um, the first thing we, we look at is open rate. Um, and an open is decided based on a one-by-one -one transparent pixel that's appended into the emails. Uh, and so the caveat with open rate testing is that not all email clients will show the pixel by default. So it's in like a, you know, by the technology used, it's an imperfect uh, metric to track to. Um, then the next metric we can track well, to is click-through rate. So hold yep. on a second. I just, I just want to understand that. So you're putting <laughs> a one pixel by one pixel image inside of an email and using that to track open rates? Yeah, this is industry standard for tracking whether or not an email is open is put a is put this one pixel by one pixel transparent ping inside of the email. Now, the, it's not an actual image that lives anywhere. It's essentially you have got a web server somewhere and you provide it like a unique URL. And each email you send, you make a, a new unique URL. And when that image is, when that email is opened, the email client will request that image from the server. 
and the server will process, oh, I've got a request for this unique URL, and then it'll return in the response this one-by-one transparent pixel. Um, but it's it's tracked that unique URL was re- was requested by an email client, and that's how you track an open happened. Whoever came up with this idea? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. It's, it's pretty crafty, but um, yeah, this is, I think this has been industry standard for like almost as long as uh, you can send an email, you can um, track an open rate of them <laughs> using about one-by-one pixels. That's fantastic. Yeah. So if you if you like that, I mean, the next metric we track is, is clicks. And so how do you track the unique click happened uh, on a specific link by a specific user? Now, the industry standard way to track links is uh, the first step is you set up what's called a DNS C name for your domain. Uh, <laughs> so this is, I'm not going to, I can't, we don't have time to d- discuss DNS and everything this means. But basically, if my domain is semwithus.com, um, I set up a domain like, click.sendwithus.com. Um, and so it's a domain that's going to be handled by the, by the email provider. Um, now, just like an open, every time we send an email, we, for every link in the email, we make a unique ID uh, that's unique to that email send and that, that recipient. And we change all the links in the email. So we replace them, you know, replace the google.com link with click.sendwithus.com slash unique ID. Um, and so when the email is opened and someone clicks on one of those specific links, it kind of gets routed first to our server that sees this unique uh, link click. And from that, we know the URL where the user wants to go. And we also know exactly which email, which recipient that was originally sent to. Um, and then the kind of redirect the user back to the original URL. So click tracking is much more precise than open tracking because, um, you know, you can not show images, but if you click on that link, you're going to, you have to go through that link we want you to go through. Okay, so you're basically just reading my traffic, essentially. You're just this intermediary sitting in between wherever it is that Mm. my destination is and saying, okay, I know where you're going, and I know where you came from. Exactly. Now, some of us, hold on a second, we can get a little bit nerdy about this. We actually go a step deeper than just tracking a unique link, um, because typically you might send an email and have the same link multiple times, and if you just use the, the method I told you about, you would um, you'd lose exactly where in the email people are clicking because you just know they went they clicked on google.com. You wouldn't know where they actually wanted to go. So in some of us, we actually tag individual DOM elements. Um, so every every like HTML anchor you have in the email, we'll tag that. So we know which actual button was clicked in the email. It's kind of like a step further on that. Okay, so by HTML anchor, you mean literally just like the specific link. So there may be a link that goes to the same URL at the top of the email and then another one at the bottom of the email. And both of those are tracked uniquely. Right. So we can tell you, you know, if you're seeing a bunch of, a bunch of clicks on that URL, we can tell you which, which specific link in the email is being clicked more. Okay. So the end result is that, you know, you send out all these emails and then you know, which emails, some of which emails are, are being opened and you know, precisely which emails have a link being clicked on. So if I could, if I were to ask you a little bit more technical of a question, uh, if you were to, let's say that somebody were to open an email and they didn't have images turned on or something, but they do end up clicking on one of the links, do you go back and like retroactively tag that email as having been opened successfully? Yeah. Yeah. So our, our system will do that. So we'll detect... Like, you know, if you've clicked an email, obviously it's been opened at some point. So right. uh, we'll, we'll make sure that, that we're inferring that open. And that actually makes, you know, it helps us make our open analytics a, a little bit more accurate. Okay. That makes perfect sense then. Yeah. Something, something else that we do that's, that's interesting is we actually track reopens and reclicks. So we'll be able to tell you, 
like not only that this link was clicked once, but we will tell you, you know, it's clicked n times, and then show you different different analytics based on that. So it's it's really interesting to know, you know, which links are being clicked at least once, but it's super interesting to know which links your customers are going back to and clicking again, right? Right. So we obviously just talked about how you are collecting all this data, or at least individual companies are collecting data on what emails are performing better and worse, but uh, you obviously have a unique vantage point in seeing what is and is not working on a broader scale. Do you have any sense of what separates great transactional emails from ones that, you know, me as a consumer overwhelmed with email is just going to delete? <laughs> yeah, we do. We've done some, some aggregate an- analysis. It's hard to get trends across the board because, uh, especially with our customer base, we, we have quite a few different customers across across different verticals. One of the biggest things we've seen is just not screwing up basic things. So example of that is like ensure the subject line uh, makes sense. Ensure the from address and from name makes sense. Um, don't use an, a from address of a no reply at. That's just, it's really bad email etiquette now to use a, a no reply from address. Uh, like, could you explain what that actually is? Yeah, totally. So when you send an email to someone, like even in Gmail, you send an email to someone, it's coming from someone. Right, there's a, a from address. So when you send a transactional email from a service, you have to specify who it's coming from as well. And many developers will be like, "Well, it's coming from my system, so like I don't want replies. So I'll set it to like I'll create the from address will be no reply at you know mydomain.com." But that's really bad email etiquette because it it seems really weird to uh, be telling people that I'm going to send you an email, but you can't email me back. Like, <laughs> right. You can't reply to this transaction. Like that's. I think that's just rude. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds pretty rude. I mean, if I were to like send my mom an email and be like, you know, this is only like one way traffic only. Sorry, mom. Don't ever try to reply to this. It, it won't work. I'll never <laughs> see the email. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so that's kind of something small. There's other things that people can, uh, don't really consider is, um, there's this idea of the, um, the intro text. So you guys are probably Gmail users. You look at your inbox and you can see the subject line. Um, and you can see some text right after that. And marketing people think about what this, their marketing emails, but essentially like the first 120 characters or so of, an, of the body of an email actually gets pulled into the inbox as kind of like a preview. And it adds extra context alongside the subject line. So uh, the something you can do with transactional email is ensure that the first 120 characters of the body of the transactional email um, actually makes sense when it's paired alongside the subject line. And that way, uh, you know, you get a much better um, just inbox experience before the email actually gets opened. Right. I mean, I've seen that at least as a as a user, as a consumer of email, where I don't know. Sometimes I'll see like, see this email in HTML. Um, I don't know why that was necessarily <laughs> being sent because that's certainly not what you wanted to open with. You know, I don't. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> if people are not sending emails with a no reply at, what should you be sending then? I mean, should I be sending? Josh at Coderly, uh, I don't really know what I should be doing, especially if I have, you know, maybe like thousands of these going out. Where should I be collecting responses to these things? Totally. The awesome answer is that it depends on your customer base and who you're emailing. I know a lot of consumer web companies will use like a, you know, happiness at company.com or like customer happiness at company.com. At some of us, we use us at some of us.com. And, uh, that's actually a real inbox. If you reply to that, like it goes in, into an inbox and, um, which we, uh, me and Brad look at. So if, if customers reply, uh, we can look at it. Now, what 
that makes sense because the total volume we get is like somewhat manageable for a couple people to be able to look at every week for a large, large consumer web business where you've got, you know, millions of people on your platform. That's not as feasible. Um, one of the things I've seen people do is, is pipe those replies into their um, support system or support desk as like a special type of ticket. So when I, I can call someone replies to one of these millions of transactional emails you're sending, you know, it goes somewhere and someone will look at it. Um, but it's kind of like in an ordered system. What's the experience if I have a no reply email, a transactional email in my inbox and say I click reply and type something and hit send, what would happen? Most of the time you'll get, you'll get bounced back and it'll pop up in your inbox again and you'll get some like crappy error from an SFTV server saying like this email address does not exist. Like we're not, you know, your email's been bounced. <laughs> Mailbox providers said they don't want to get this. Like <laughs> it's just terrible. Oh yeah. No, that's an awesome user experience. That's exactly how I want to be working with customers. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. This is like, not to get too high level, but this is like what frustrated me and Brad about this whole transactional email thing is that most people, because like, it's trapped in source code, most companies don't put any thought or effort into this and you just end up with really terrible customer experiences. Um, and that's really not how you want a core part of your, the product experience to be. And that's what transactional email is. I think, I think that's, that's the biggest thing here. Like if you're trying to make great transactional emails, like it needs to be an extension of your product. It needs to be thought of as like part of your customer lifecycle, right? So like the team that's building, that's building your application or the team that's specking out like what that onboarding process looks like should also be in charge of like what those first emails look like or, or what a password reset email looks like. Like it's all part of customer experience. And, you know, the thing that frustrated us about it is just, you know, nobody's putting as much time and effort into it as it as needs to be put in to make these things great. Are you are you guys familiar with uh, Samuel Hulick of User Onboard at all? Yeah, I don't know him personally, but I'm like super familiar with his work. Um, we look at it a lot and we've um, been contemplating doing something similar with email, actually. Yeah, I, th- I think just in the same way that he was frustrated by the experience of people kind of tacking on user onboarding as an afterthought as like, oh, here's these like light boxes and this weird, you know, navigation to UI. <laughs> and it seems ridiculous in retrospect to talk about it that way. But I mean, realistically, like if you're not able to onboard somebody into your product in a natural way, that seems to be a core product issue, right? And mm-hmm. I would think the the same is true, just like you said, of transactional emails. I mean, if this is part of the whole life cycle of the experience and somebody literally is seeing this happen after some action that they take, which is the very nature of a transactional email, shouldn't you be thinking of that in advance and not just as, you know, something that a developer got assigned as a task right, five right. months ago? I mean, that that's exactly it. And so, like, if you ask us, like, what makes a great transactional email, it's it's the companies and the products that are taking that into consideration, and baking it into their workflows. Mm-hmm. They need to treat it as part of the user interface because even though it's a separate application, it's still, you know, a screen that they're looking at in the next step. Yeah. So so it's not really a... I think the question almost was a tactical question, but the answer that you have is more a strategic one. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. And I want to come back around to this question of personalization because I think... What's interesting to me about these transactional emails that we're discussing is the ability to have these be deeply personalized based on the action that you're taking. So if we're assuming, like you're talking about, that we're trying to get emails out of source code a little bit and we're trying to end up in a situation where developers aren't necessarily responsible for the content that goes into the emails, how do we also 
maintain the ability to have those emails get you know the personal really interesting data from the application itself into the email how, how does this work can you just kind of give me a a high level overview of the way that mm -hmm. this process goes yeah totally so the way our system works is uh the core kind of api we have is we say send an email um and you say i want to send it to this person and you say i want to send it to the, i want to send this template and you specify like a template id that corresponds to a template in our system um uh, and then you say Here's a JSON dictionary that I want to have available in this template. And that can be anything you want. It can be nested objects. It's just, you know, it's a JSON, it's a JSON REST API. Many customers will like serialize their user object, serialize like a transaction and maybe pipe in some information about like, uh, maybe what friends this person has or recent action they've taken. And the developer just kind of writes this once and puts all this data together for this send an email API call. And then they're done. And then the marketer comes in and they say, okay, like, what data do I have to play with? And like, all right, I've got the user's first name and last name. Let's plop these in. Um, and oh, I've got a list of their recent purchases. Like, maybe I'll show that at the bottom of the email in a list and I'll loop through them. Um, and then here's the core information I want to have is, is a, a, uh, like a, you know, main link to click through. And maybe this has like a unique token. Oh, and that's provided in the data as well. And so it's all the developer writes the code once to push the data into the email. Um, and then the marketer can use it. Now, what our system kind of takes that forward is once you sent that email once, we actually take that recipient and we put them in a database on, in some of us. And we take all that data you gave us as well. And we also store that on that recipient. Um, so the next time you send an email, maybe your developer has added some code, has added some data into the next email send um, API call, but maybe they didn't add the first name. But because we have that data in the send with us customer database, the marker can still say, okay, put the first name in um, and we'll pull that from our database, not just from the API call. Okay, interesting. So let me back up a little bit too and try and understand some of the technical terms that you threw out there. So you mentioned things like you've got this JSON dictionary and you're hitting this REST API endpoint. Can you explain that a little bit more for me? Totally. Brad might want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you can, you can think of it as like when you want to send an email, um, you're making an API call to our system and you're basically providing like attributes, like customer attributes to make make available or variables that you want to put in a template. And the variables can be anything. It can be a string. It could be a first name. It could be a value. It could be like a dollar amount, or it can even be a list uh, if you want to iterate over, over a couple different items. Um, and that's, that's all the JSON dictionary is. It's just a way to define uh, a bunch of sort of variables and, and value mappings. Okay. So if, if I were to um, put this in the perspective of an example then, so let's say that We'll take a product that I've been working on recently, um, Cook Academy, and uh, it's just a place for people to learn how to cook. And, you know, you work on lessons. So maybe you have like the list that you were talking about. I've got maybe the all the favorite lessons that I've saved or something. And then you've also got maybe some other information, like you said, my first name, last name, um, maybe the number of lessons I've completed or like number of skills that I have or skills I just learned, is that the kind of data that you're talking about getting in here? Yeah, exactly. And I think like like lessons you've favorited is, is a really great example or even like past purchase history. So like items you've, you've purchased in the past or things you've liked or friends that, are, that you're following, that sort of thing. And just like really much more personalized data than you typically see in an email and you just make it available to our system. And then, uh, you know, you can use it for any any email going forward. So if you want to reference you know, favorited or, or uh, followed lessons uh, in a future email, you'd be able to do that as well. 
Okay, got it. So, I mean, really, if we're trying to look at the work that the developer was doing before versus the work that maybe the business person is doing now, the developer previously would have had to have not only gotten all that data out of our database and into this email, but also would have had to have iterated over all these things themselves, figured out, like, what are the photos going to look like? You know, how are we going to render all this stuff? Is that correct then? Right, exactly. And they'd be, you know, building some some email content, some HTML email content in code on their side, and then they'd have to send it out. And they'd be responsible for that for that sort of generation. So I'm I'm trying to get a a perspective of how the division is here. Um what is the non technical person able to customize? What are they able to change? And then what does the developer have to change? Right. So the, the developer controls because they, you know, they set the API call, they control when the email gets sent, right? So they're making the API call in real time to say, you know, this user just signed up, send them this welcome email. And then they also control what data is going to be made available to the template. And then from there, the marketer or, or the product team can define the entire content of the email. So they get like full HTML control. You know, they can see what data is, has been made available to them from the developer's API call, and then they can decide exactly what that email looks like, and they can update it whenever they want. Okay, so they have some sort of an editor where, for responding to, say, a, a welcome email, they have an editor where they can fill in, in the blanks, and they can control the HTML content. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we use, um, we use a, a templating language to like drop in different variables and, and loop over different content. So that's the way that they go about creating the HTML and editing the HTML. Okay, so are those... Um, is that templating language pretty accessible then to somebody who is non-technical or do you expect somebody to have some technical proficiency going into that? Yeah, there's a bit of a training process to get the marketers familiar with it, but it's, uh, it's not, uh, too onerous. Like most, most people who are dealing with email are, are familiar with like what's a placeholder and a placeholder is like, you know, a variable for a first name or a last name. And it's not too much of a stretch to say, okay, now like this is a conditional. One of the benefits of our of our platform is that if the marketer tries to save the email template and either the HTML or the template code is broken in any way, you know, we don't actually let them save the email. We give them an error message. That's kind of like a requirement of a platform of ours because the developer puts the reliance in that once they put it in the API call to send this template, the marketer can't break the template. <laughs> right. 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 And, and the, the template language we've chosen is like, it's an open source. It's a very common open source template language. And there's a ton of documentation, um, not just in, in our resources, but just publicly available resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I, I know that we've been kind of dancing around a little bit your product send with us. I think we try and shy away at least from just wholeheartedly recommending a product because I don't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think. Yeah. But in this case, going from the pain that I felt as a developer and as, you know, a business person, I hate relying on myself and I hate when like companies have to rely on me to deal with whatever it is that they're doing in email. Because like you said, it is so important. You know, I, I think it's too much to ask for that to continue to be in the hands of the software developers only. Um, yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I, I certainly want to end up delegating the work over to somebody else you know if if i have a copywriter who's working on it i don't want to be consistently going and taking the copy changes that they had and putting it into code and changing my Mm -hmm. tests and making sure that everything works the way that i expect it to work i'd rather just 
they deal with the headache of that at this point. Yeah, you want to change one sentence and now the developer has to drop everything they're doing to deploy yeah. that as a feature. Right. Yeah, so we, we would never be ones to try to shove our product down people's throat either. But it may be interesting to mention kind of a bit of the founding story and why Brad and I started this company. We used to be uh, developer consultants, um, essentially building products for people, um, like MVPs and, and that kind of thing, on um, really short deadlines, like four weeks or or so. And one of the biggest pain points we found was that we'd roll, we'd build this product and then email would be an afterthought. And then we'd get stuck in the weeds with trying to iterate on email content, trying to decide on like what it should look like and like all these different things. And so we ended up building, you know, like mini content management systems for email for these products we'd spin up. And we'd built mini A-B testing tools for these products and like all these little pain points we hit. And like building a content management system that like a CEO or a marketer can log in and use is actually like a little bit like it's non-trivial and like that's a lot of work and then you have to maintain it. And then like think about what happens when all of a sudden you want to be international and you're going to launch internationally and like internationalizing a product is easier nowadays. Like there's a lot of those packages and frameworks that to help out with most major platforms, but uh, you have to roll out on all your own if you're doing that with email. And if you're kind of like hacking this on top of something you've already built internally, like it gets really painful. So this is like something we lived and breathed many times and we kind of got frustrated with it. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I can totally understand that. I think it's kind of the, I don't know, it's the death of software developers to have to end up working on systems like that that are not necessarily the core of the product, but, you know, you just need to abstract away to be able to deal with the pain, you know? Yeah. That's fantastic that you managed to turn that into a company then. <laughs> uh, I think it's a, it's a great way, like getting experience in a field by like living and breathing is a great way to understand the problems in an industry or in a problem. Okay. Well, is there anything that you would want to leave us off with? I mean, anything that you, you feel is like the right takeaway message for somebody looking to ensure that the transactional email that they're doing is uh, like, the core of their product rather than just an afterthought. One of the things a lot of people get value out of uh, really early on is um, like, uh, you know, user onboarding was a great example of uh, pioneering this, but many people like kind of whiteboard out what the onboarding flow looks like, but not many people whiteboard out like the emails that are related to that um, and what they're all going to look like and, and what should be in them. And it, like concrete plans for these things doesn't really matter, but just like bringing in email and thinking about the email as you're mapping out what the customer experience is going to be is like super, super valuable. We've got this philosophy of thinking about email based on um, uh, Dave McCurr's biometrics. So uh, it's, that's too much, but just thinking at the different stages in the user lifecycle, what emails are they going to be getting and what are those emails going to look like and what what's the goal of those emails? What do we want the user to do? Um, and ensuring that the you know, what you actually build in that email matches what you want the user to do. Right. And so just uh, for those listeners who aren't familiar, uh, Dave McClure's Startup Metrics for Pirates, so R, which is Acquisition, <laughs> Activation, Retention, Referral, and Revenue. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I think thinking of things in those terms is certainly very useful and I think is a good guiding light. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised continually by uh, how few people will take the broader perspective on these. So I think what you're doing just in terms of educating people on this is really worthwhile. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Thank you. So thank you so much, guys, for taking the time to talk with us about this. Tell us, where can we keep up with you online? Yeah, totally. Um, I think Brad and I are both uh, active on Twitter. 
Um, I'm Mr. MCH, M-R-M-C-H, which is my initials. Um, and Brad's Twitter handle is... Yeah, it's just, it's just B Van Vugt, so B-V-A-N-V-U-G-T. Excellent. So it's, uh, it's semwithus.com, is that right? Yeah. And are you on Twitter there too? Uh, yeah, unfortunately we don't have at sendwithus. That belongs to a climbing gym that I absolutely love. It's uh, at send underscore with underscore us. All right, well, thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at talkingcode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to talkingcode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.